Happy Lord's Day. It is good to be face-to-face before the Lord together in worship this morning. We are in 1 Thessalonians again today, and we are in chapter 2, chapter 2, and here Paul has not left behind the argument of chapter 1. Remember, he opened the body of the letter in verse 2 by saying, we give thanks to God always for all of you. And he's actually going to spend the first few chapters of this book just sort of gushing over what God has done in and among the Thessalonian church. And so last week we talked about how the word was preached faithfully to the Thessalonians, how it came to them, how they received the word, and then how the word rings out from them to other people such that they moved from being imitators of Paul and Timothy and Silas to examples to other churches. As we come to chapter 2, Paul has not left this argument behind. He's still giving thanks for the Thessalonians, and he still wants to reassure them of what he knows there in verses 4 and 5. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. This morning, he's going to fill that in a little bit. How the word came to the Thessalonians. And then when, we're not going to get to verses 13 through 16 this week. But then when he gets to verses 13 through 16, he's going to talk more about how they received the word. How it bore fruit among them. And so he begins our chapter by reflecting on his ministry among the Thessalonians. And one of the fun parts about Paul's reflection here is that it sets before us a pattern for faithful ministry. Pastors can come to this text and go, what does a faithful ministry look like for me? Oh, there are some good things here. I need to be faithful to speak such that it pleases God. I need to be like a mother among my people. I need to be like a father. I need to work hard. And you know what else? Every member of this church, every Christian can come to this passage and ask that same question. What does faithful ministry look like for me? And have an answer. We can imitate Paul as the Thessalonians did. Paul wants us to see, he wants the Thessalonians to see, that his ministry among them was not in vain. It was not empty. It produced results. And that primary result that he's getting to is in verses 13 through 16. Again, that's part two. That's next week. He's like, I preached the word and it bore fruit. The fruit comes in verses 13 through 16. But the first reason he gives that his ministry was not in vain among them is that he was faithful, that he and Silas and Timothy and the ministry team there in Thessalonica lived lives that were pleasing to God. They spoke to please God, and they lived to please God with their holy conduct as they shared themselves with the Thessalonians. So if you're thinking, what's the main sort of structure of this chapter But Paul was proving that his ministry wasn't in vain. Reason number one, because he lived in a way that was pleasing to God in his ministry and because his ministry bore fruit in the lives of the Thessalonians. I've tried to summarize that in a main idea this morning, that faithfulness is never futile. It's never in vain because it's pleasing to God. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you're looking for that phrase or that thing to tuck into your pocket and to think about this week, it's this, live to please God. Live to please God. Now with that as the background, would you stand with me in the honor of reading God's holy and perfect word? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, pay attention to that. He talks about how they know these things already quite a few times. He's done it twice already. Shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. 
For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. May he carve its eternal truth on our hearts. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to approach you with deepest reverence, not with presumption not with servile fear, but with holy boldness. You are beyond the grasp of our fullest understanding, yet not beyond our love. You know that we love you supremely because you are supremely adorable, good, and perfect. Our hearts melt at the love of Christ. He is our brother, bone of our bones, flesh of our flesh, married to us as his bride, dead for us as our substitute, risen for us as our king. He is ours and we are his. We are never so much delighted in him as we are when we are lost in him. We are never so much ourselves as we are when we find ourselves in him But Lord, we confess our love is frost and cold, ice and snow. Let the love of Christ warm us once more. Lighten our burdens. Be our heaven. May it be more revealed to us in all its influences that our love to Christ may be more fervent and glowing Let the mighty tide of Christ's everlasting love cover the rocks of our sins and our cares. Let our spirit float above these things which otherwise would wreck our lives. Make us fruitful by living to that love. Make our character more and more beautiful every day. If the traces of Christ's love and artistry be upon us, may he work on us with his divine brush all the more until the complete image of him be perfected in us. O Christ, come to us. Divine Spirit, rest upon us. O Holy Father, look on us in mercy for the sake of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Paul opens this letter eager to remind the Thessalonians about how they came to them with the word and how they lived among them in a manner consistent with the word. And he wants to make clear what his motivation for coming to the Thessalonians was. And so he says it was not out of an attempt to deceive them. It was not from error or impurity, impurity there is a reference to sexual purity, we'll come back to that, not out of impurity or any attempt to deceive. 
Indeed, look at verse 5. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul is saying, we did not come to you. We could have made demands for enumeration, but we didn't. We didn't want to be a burden to you. We didn't come to you looking for money. We did not come to you greedy for wealth. We did not come to you as entertainers trying to gather to ourselves groupies. We didn't come to you ultimately for your approval. We came to you not like the traveling philosophers or magicians or religious enthusiasts in the land looking for notoriety. No, we came to you because we wanted to please God. That should have been plain to the Thessalonians, right? He, he makes it obvious there in verse 1, sorry, verse 2. He's reminding them of how they were shamefully treated in Philippi. And so he forces us to turn in our Bibles to Acts 16 as we remember how shamefully treated they were in Philippi. You remember the story starts out pretty good. Paul shows up. He preaches the gospel. God opens Lydia's heart so that she believes She and her household follow Christ. They're baptized. Things are looking pretty good. And then one day, they're traveling along. They're going to pray. And there's this little demon-possessed girl. She's a slave girl owned by masters. And she is able to predict the future, do some sort of divining by way of the demon that is inside of her. And she really gets on Paul's nerves. She annoys him to the point where he's like, I can't take this anymore, it's been a few days. I'm going to cast the demon out of her. And then all sorts of trouble happens. I'm just going to read to you from Acts chapter 16 and starting with verse 17. This is what she's crying out. She followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Paul's drawing their attention to the fact that, you know, it is madness, they say, to do the same thing over and over again and expect different results. He's saying, we took this message to Philippi and it did not bring us accolades, believe it or not. It brought us shame and suffering rods and chains. And yet, when we came to you, we preached that same message because it's true. And because our aim is not to please men, but to please God. That's their motivation. Verse 3 For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul's saying we are approved by God. He knows our hearts. He knows our motivations. And therefore, from that approval of God, from his entrusting us with the gospel, we seek to obey God. We seek to please God. We are living to please God. We came to you and spoke the words of God, 
because we love God. And our obedience to God is how we love God back. Now, I might have got a little tangled up, but what I want to show you here, and this is going to seem like a large diversion in some ways, but we're going to come back. It's going to make sense. There is a current underneath of this passage that moves the whole thing along. And it's right there in that first part of verse 4, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Paul is motivated to share the gospel because he wants to please God. But what I want you to understand, and it's essential for our Christianity to understand, is that if we just want to please God to try and gain his approval, we've lost the gospel. Paul is not trying to obey God to earn favor with God. He's already received God's favor, and that fuels his obedience. That fuels his desire to please God. And so we're going to use two big and important Christian words. You're probably familiar with them, right? Justification and sanctification. We're going to tie justification to the word approval in the text, and we're going to tie sanctification to that phrase, pleasing to God. But first, let's define justification. This is how Paul knows that he has God's approval. Justification simply means being declared right with God. The Westminster Divines said it this way, Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only because of the righteousness of Christ, credited to us and received by faith alone. Maybe you've heard uh, a more simplistic and I think fairly helpful definition of justification as just as if I never sinned, but I want you to know that's inadequate. It's helpful, but it's inadequate because justification is not just as if I never sinned. Some of us get that part of it and that's where we live and the consequence is we live sort of sad and hopeless Christian lives that God's sort of disappointed in us and he just accepts us because he has to in Christ, you know, looks the other way, curls his nose up at us. Justification is not just as if I never sinned. It's just as if I never sinned and, and do not miss the and, and just as if I did everything right. That's what's happening in justification. We are being credited with Christ's righteousness. And Jesus is being credited with our sins. Economic example, right? So if it's just as if I never sinned, so you're, you're before God, you're a sinner, you are a rebel, you're trying to run your own life, you have an infinite amount of debt. You are forever and ever, amen, in the red. If it's just as if I never sinned, well, that gets me back to even, back to zero, But the blood of Jesus Christ is more valuable than that. It pays all of our debts and puts us infinitely forever in the red. His righteousness is credited to us such that when God judges us, he looks at us and he says, good and righteous, not guilty. And this is so important for us to grasp. This is is the very root of salvation, that God saves us through Christ. Nothing we do contributes to our salvation. Nothing we do helps make us right with God. Only God does that. Only the blood of Christ can do that. I can't contribute to it. Jesus' payment of his blood for the salvation of his people doesn't need added on to. They're saved by faith alone. This is what we mean. Faith alone means we are saved by faith alone in God's work, in Christ's work on the cross. Luther used to talk about this as a great exchange. We can look to the cross and we see Jesus taking our burdens and our sins and our failures and our shame. And we also know in his resurrection that we will be made like him, that he's given to us his goodness and righteousness. That's where we are positionally, justified, good. That's not where we're at practically. That's sanctification. We're going to get there in a minute. 
But as we stand before God, we are declared righteous. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, th- this is salvation. Jesus is our substitute. He bears our sin. And he is our substitute. He lives a perfect life of righteousness that becomes ours when we become united to him in faith. We get all his righteousness. He gets all our unrighteousness and dies for it. He takes the penalty for our sins so that we can be pardoned. Justification, when you put your faith in Christ, when you believe in him, turning from your sins, justification means that we're right with God. And it is the fountainhead from which all the blessings of Christianity spring forth. We are justified, and as a corollary, we are adopted into the family of God. We were once orphans, and we are now adopted. We were once dead. Now we are alive. We were once born, and now we've been born again unto life eternal. This is good news, that we can be made right with God. We can have God's approval, not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done for us. Non-Christian, if you're here, I want you to know that anyone can get in on this good news. It's for you. If you will turn from your sins and trust Christ, you can move from death to life. You can be born again. You can know God. You were made to know him. Trust him this morning. Trust him. Talk to somebody at the door about it. Talk to any member here. We would love to tell you about Jesus. Find me. I'll be, I'll be somewhere around here. I'll talk to you. Come to Christ. Consider Christ, my non-Christian friend. Church, our Christianity stands or falls with this doctrine. The doctrine of justification, I mean, wars have been fought over it. Reformations have happened because of it. It is a central doctrine, and we must understand it. If we get justification wrong, we get Christianity wrong. If we get justification wrong, we lose the gospel. If we get justification wrong, all the joy that we ought to have in Christ will be strangled out of us. Because if we get justification wrong, we don't live from God's approval but we start living for God's approval. And we can never, never live up to all the perfections of God. And so we will find ourselves failing over and over and over again. We will be living on that side just as if I never sinned and feeling like God doesn't even like us. We don't want to live there. We want to understand that God doesn't just put up with us. He's not just forgiven us of our sins. He's credited us, credited us with the righteousness of Christ. He likes you. Sometimes you hear Christians talk that way, like, I love that brother, but I don't have to like them. Right? So I think we think God relates to us in that way. Oh, I like, I like Justin, or I love Justin, but I don't really like that guy. No, God loves you, and he likes you in Christ. He has made you righteous. He's made you righteous positionally. He's declared you righteous. This is so, so important, particularly if you are a struggling Christian. I assume there are some of us in here struggling. This doctrine helps you realize that in Christ you are, and you can go look back at verse 4, what Paul wants them to know, you are loved by God. You are chosen by God. You are approved by God. Listen, struggling Christian. Do not let the devil whisper in your ear lies that God doesn't love you, that you might not really be saved. 
Don't listen to him. Look to the cross. The cross is proof of God's love for you. The empty tomb is a guarantee that the grave will not hold you any more than it held your Lord. You need to keep trusting Jesus' words. He will never cast out anyone who comes to him. He is the good shepherd, and no one will pluck any of his sheep from his hand. He will get you safely home. Be assured, dear ones, dear struggling Christian, be assured that you are in Christ. I'm going to give you a handful of ways you can be assured of your salvation. Because it's this assurance of God's approval of us, of his adoption of us, that motivates us to live in a manner that is pleasing to him. You can be assured because of the testimony of the Holy Spirit in you. You can be assured that you are in Christ because of your desire to repent and believe. Here's the thing. Dead people, people dead in their sins, don't desire. They don't desire Christ. Be assured of your desire to repent and believe. Be assured by your baptism and the testimony of the church that you are indeed a Christian. Did you know that's part of what what we get in church membership? What we're doing. We're a bunch of Christians, and when somebody comes and says, I believed in Jesus, we examine their profession of faith, we may say, yeah, that's that's a right confession of faith. You're confessing that Jesus is Lord. And your life seems consistent with that. Confession. We, as best we can tell, together as a church, are now going to speak with the voice of Christ by affirming that you are in Christ, that you are a Christian. This is a sense, a way that we can remind ourselves we really are in Christ. Be assured of your salvation. And be assured by the Christian fruit in your life. And look back over your life and go, oh, I obeyed God there. I I turned from the way I would do, thing, do things, and I did them God's way. The Christian fruit in our lives is not the cause of our salvation. It is the result of it. We're, we're saved by faith alone, justification. And faith that saves is never alone. It produces fruit. We're, we're on to, to sanctification now if you're keeping score. Second word, sanctification, and I love this definition of it. You'll hear me say it many times. Sanctification is becoming in practice what we've been declared in Christ. So positionally justified, right with God. Practically, we are not yet perfected. We are not yet perfectly like Jesus. And so practically, we are in progress. We are growing in godliness. That's what it means to be in the process of sanctification. We're we're justified, made right with God, and we're becoming in practice what we've been declared justified in Christ, which is holy. So we are in the process of becoming holy. So this way, once we've been adopted into the family of God, we then begin living up to the family name. When we are born again, we begin walking in the newness of life. When the root of salvation grows in good soil, we bear good Christian fruit. Justification and sanctification are distinct, but they are bedfellows. They're never found apart from one another. They sleep together at night. They drive in the same car. They go to the same places. Where one is, you are sure to find the other. You with me? In Christ, we are made right with God. We are approved with God. And when we are made right with God, we begin producing the fruit of that relationship. Justification speaks of our union with Christ, our standing in his family. Sanctification speaks to how we will experience our communion with Christ. Let me illustrate this for you. Imagine a boy and his father walking through a field alongside a wonderful river and a clear blue sky. In the first scenario, the boy and the father are walking together, but the boy is trailing behind his father because he's recently disobeyed. Head is down at his feet. Let me ask you a question. Is the boy still the father's son? 
Yeah. Legally, he's a son. Now, scenario number two, the boy and his father are walking through the field, and the boy has just obeyed the word of his father. He's right on his hip. And as they walk in lockstep, the father reaches down, grabs the boy, pulls him up, and just lavishes him with hugs and kisses and raspberries, you know. (laughs) Is the boy the father's son? Yeah. So in both scenarios, the boy is the father's son. Union with Christ. Adoption into the family of God. In the second scenario, they're both still sons, but their experience of their sonship is fundamentally different. Does that make sense? We talk about sanctification and how we experience communion with God. We can draw closer in intimacy with God by way of our obedience and our devotion to God, or we can draw further away. Does that make sense? Justification is the monergistic work of God. He does all of it. We do all the sinning. He does all the saving. In sanctification, God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, helps us and we cooperate with the Spirit to grow in godliness. And we will draw closer or further from God on the basis of how we live. So all of that, to come back to the text, we're going to anchor it here now. The motivation for Paul and Timothy and Silas to come to Thessalonica and to speak God's word faithfully, the motivation there is they've been justified. They've been made right with God. And therefore, out of their union with Christ, they want to please God. They have his favor, and so they're going, I love you. I love that you delight in me. I want to please you. I want to do that which brings you glory and honor and praise. Their motivation for ministry is to please God. And so here is the application, and this is so important. This is so important. Brothers and sisters, you have the approval of God. He delights in you. You've been entrusted with the gospel. And you can please God. Did you know that? I I lived far too much in my Christian life not realizing that. Sort of viewing all these commands in the New Testament as like, ah, yes, God commands us, but we could never do that, and thank goodness for the cross. Jesus does it for us. And he does. But the commands of the New Testament are not hypothetical commands. Pleasing God is not a hypothetical category. You really can do it. You really can obey the commands of God. In fact, when you do it, it makes God happy. It pleases him. We want to be a church who recognizes we are made right with God on the basis of Christ's work alone, and a church that strains with all that we have to please the God who loves us. We want our church to be motivated by pleasing God, such that we will never be tempted to speak in order to please man, that we won't be the kind of people who order our lives so that we can have the acclaim of the world. No! We want to be the kind of people who live for Christ, who speak not to please man, but to please God. Let's pray that this pulpit would be a place where God's truth rings out without apology. Let's pray that we would be a people willing to share the undiluted message of the cross in a culture that hates the idea that all men and women are sinners and separated from God. A culture that hates the idea that if you follow your heart, apart from regeneration, you will end up in hell and you deserve it. Let's commit to preaching Christ. Let's commit to preaching Christ please God and not man. It is the pardon of God that Paul, Silas, and Timothy enjoy. Justification. 
that leads them to suffer, to endure shame and scorn, to come to the Thessalonians. They are motivated because they have the favor of God and they want to please God. Therefore, their message, their ministry among the Thessalonians was not in vain because it pleased God. God was pleased with how they spoke and he was pleased with their conduct. Look at verses 9 and 10. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. Now, i got to say, that last part probably strikes us as a little awkward, right? When was the last time you heard a Christian say to somebody, or said to somebody yourself, you know how I lived among you. My conduct was holy, righteous, and blameless. We don't really talk that way, do we? And I think some of it is we don't, we want to protect ourselves from pride. We don't want to be thought arrogant. But I think another reason is that we misunderstand what Paul means when he's talking about living a life that's holy and blameless and righteous. He is not, he's not suggesting that while they were in Thessalonica, they never sinned. Or that all of their acts of obedience were perfect acts of obedience. What he is saying is that they were truly obedient. And that that was pleasing to God. But what I'm getting at is, you really can please God, you really can obey God, and you really are, if you are a Christian, righteous and holy and blameless. Those ought be adequate descriptions of you. Nowhere would God be able to commend anyone if the words holy and righteous and blameless here implied sinless perfection. But over and over again in the Bible, we we find the authors describing pretty sinful folks to us as righteous. I think this really stood out to me in the book of Kings when David is described. Uh, God is speaking to Jeroboam, who who set up two false idols, two golden calves. Jeroboam's sort of like Aaron 2.0. And this is what what the author of Kings says. 1 Kings chapter 14, verses 7 and 8. Go tell Jeroboam, thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet, hear this part, you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. I read that and I thought... Does this guy not know his history? David did only that which was right in the Lord's eyes? I mean, he did. He did sleep with another man's wife. Then he, he tried to trick that other man into sleeping with his wife so he could pass the baby off as the other man's. Then when that didn't work, he put a hit on the other man, which was carried out, and you know, ultimately Uriah died. He was dead. And so we look at David's life and those two sort of hallmark sins and we say, okay, uh, adulterer, liar, murderer. And then we come to 1 Kings 14 here and, and God says through the author, Jeroboam, you haven't been like David. He kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. How? What's this? There's a difference between David and Jeroboam. There's a difference between Christians and non-Christians. Repentance. When David sinned, he repented. He sought the Lord, and therefore we get heaven's verdict. He's viewed as righteous because of his faith in God's promises. He's viewed as righteous because of his faith in Christ. He's loyal to the Lord. If God only accepted perfect obedience from his children, we would never be able to please him. But true obedience is different from perfect obedience. And God delights in our truly obeying his word. The Bible has good things to say 
The Bible calls righteous David, Job, Joseph, Elizabeth, Moses, Tamar, Rahab, Sarah, Abraham, and more. And when you are following Christ, when your faith is in Christ, that's heaven's verdict on you as well. And when you live in a manner consistent with his word, you can pick up this phrase and say with Paul, our conduct is holy, righteous, and blameless. Again, we really can please God. Luther, twice today, wasn't expecting that. Luther said uh, that Christians are simul justice et peccator. I probably messed up the Latin, but it sounds fancy. What he means is we are simultaneously, at the same time, sinners and saints. And I think in my own Christian life, and, and in many churches, not all, One of the things that we do to our own detriment is we lean into the sinner's part and we never get to the saint's part. And what I want to show you from from this passage and from from Paul's words in verse 9 particularly is that we are saints, brothers and sisters. God sees us as his and as righteous. And if you're like, oh, God can never see me as a saint or as righteous, look at 1 Corinthians. Paul calls one of the worst churches you've ever heard of saints. He loves us, he accepts us, and from that place of justification, from that place of pardon, we then live to please God. You can please him. You can please him with righteous conduct. And Paul continues, we didn't continue, I, I pulled this out of order. He's going to say the way that we were holy among you, there's two examples. I'm moving ahead of myself, let's back up. First, he says, you know that we lived holy, and he calls two witnesses. Did you notice that? He says, you are witnesses, verse 10, and God also. And so he's saying, you know that I am not just blowing smoke. We really were holy among you. And he gives us two illustrations to prove that they lived holy lives among them. First, verse 7, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. I love this image. Love it. I mean, we all all have had mothers. Some of us have been mothers, or at least been around them. I mean, mothers sacrifice all the time. It's a full-time job being a mom. It's, it's mentally, physically, and emotionally exhausting. I've watched Chelsea do it quite a few times. And uh, we, don't, we don't use bottles because that's her own thing. You, wanna, you can talk about that later. It's not really pertinent. Uh, but so anytime a baby needs to eat in my house, we got to go find mama. And babies need to eat a lot. Like, especially when they're little babies. In the watches of the night, baby gets hungry and mama has to go to work. Baby needs to be given food and nourishment and life. You see, see what the imagery's getting at? Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they, they came not to take from the Thessalonians. They weren't looking to get rich. They weren't looking to get glory. They weren't looking to get notoriety. They didn't come to get. They came to give. And they gave of themselves to the Thessalonians. Like No mother asks, what can I get out of this? It's just always giving. And this is a portrait of Paul's ministry. It should be a portrait for pastors. We, are, we should be those who give. It's a pattern that should be followed by deacons. Be a people who give. It's for all of us. We should be a church that is committed to giving of ourselves for others. I mean, I mean this passage is, speaks so much to the necessary embodiment of Christian fellowship. If you're here and you're, you're just a, you're a church attender, I'm, re- I'm really glad you're here. I want you to keep coming. I want you to keep attending. But I want you to know that you really should join a local church. I would love for it to be this church, but you can only 
can't really share of yourself in the way Paul's talking about here, apart from church membership, apart from being united to a local body of believers. Members of the body of Christ obey Christ by joining themselves to actual local bodies of Christ. With me? Members of the universal church express that membership by joining themselves to real local churches. I invite you, church attender, talk to us about church membership. Join the fellowship here. We want to share our lives with you, that you might be edified and built up in Christ together with us. Church member, resolve to be like a nursing mother to your brothers and sisters. Yes, I stated that kind of awkwardly, and intentionally so. My hope is that the image, well, it'll be awkward enough that you'll remember it, ultimately. We want to be as nursing mothers toward one another. And ask somebody this week, how is your nursing going? Right? We want to give of ourselves to one another. We want to build relationship with one another. We want to be like Paul, affectionately desirous of one another. We want to really draw near. We want to love the fellowship of the saints. And so, First Baptist, I have a, a challenge for you this week. This week, this month, I'm going to make it really easy for you. Sometime over the next month, resolve to have a meal with somebody that you don't know. It doesn't have to be at your house. You can take them to, to lunch. I know some of y'all don't cook. Coffee can be passing, right? But write it down. You can get your phones out, permission, or if you have pen and paper, write down. All right, next month, over the next month, I'm going to have some person, some family into my home whom I don't know, and we're going to share life together. These people are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, we ought to want to get to know one another. Resolve to give of yourself to the fellowship of the saints. Do you love this church? Pray that God would increase your affections. Paul says, we didn't come to take from you. We were among you like a mother giving, and we were like, among you like fathers. Look at verses 11 and 12. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul drops the maternal metaphor, and he picks up the paternal metaphor. In this culture at this time, the father was responsible for educating his children and training his children and forming the character of his children. And ultimately what Paul is saying here is, you know that we lived among you like fathers. We encouraged you. We coached you up. We showed you taught you, instructed you how to live in a manner worthy of God and of his kingdom that he's called you into. You're like, well, how do I live in a manner worthy? You go back to chapter 1. He says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. That's the end of verse 5 and then verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Paul, Paul is saying we taught you. You know we were among you. He's reminding them of all this. Our ministry was not in vain because we came to please God by virtue of how we spoke God's word to you and by virtue of how we lived among you. We showed you how to do the Christian life. And he's getting ready to go into verse 13 and say, and you received it. You became examples to all these other churches. The word has worked in Thessalonica. And God is honored. Our ministry wasn't in vain because we carried out our ministry in order to please him and his word bore fruit. God was pleased with Paul and Silas and Timothy and Thessalonians. And, and let's situate this here at the end in the context of, of the whole thing. Paul is giving thanks for the Thessalonians. He's gushing over this church. And so we want to gush over our church. 
I want to remind you that God is pleased with First Baptist Church. God wants us to to recognize it. One One of the goals of this text is to help us to be thankful for the people God has called us together in. We can give thanks that First Baptist Church is committed to God-pleasing ministry, rooted in Christ's work on the cross. We're committed to following the pattern in these verses. We want to be a people who speak to please God, a people who live to please God with our conduct. We want to be a people who embody this passage in the same way the Lord Jesus did. Lord Jesus boldly calls his people to himself. Like a mother, he sacrificed his body so that his church could be born. Like a mother, he poured out his blood so that he might nourish his children. We live because we feed on the flesh and blood of Christ. And like a father, Jesus Christ trains us, encourages us, and has shown us how to walk in a manner worthy of God, fully pleasing to Him. Brothers and sisters, faithfulness is never futile. Live to please God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we have been declared righteous. We thank you that by your Holy Spirit we can grow in godliness. We ask that you would bless us, that you would keep us from walking in the counsel of the wicked, from standing in the way of sinners, from sitting in the seat of scoffers. And we ask that you would make our delight in your law, in your word, that you would cause us to meditate on it day and night, that you would make us a joyful people in love with you, committed to pleasing you because we have been adopted by you, are approved by you, and are loved perfectly in Christ. We thank you for saving us sinners and making us saints. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.